Hello and welcome to this podcast of Neonatal Conversations. My name is Kath Carmo and I'm a neonatal intensive care specialist in Sydney, Australia. My practice is in the Grace Centre for Newborn Intensive Care and also in neonatal retrieval as the Deputy Director of NETS New South Wales. My research interest has been in neonatal ultrasound in retrieval, where we take point-of-care ultrasound on the run to assess critically ill newborns who often require treatment with inotropes, specifically focusing on the baby with significant oxygen requirements. Today we are going to discuss the use of inotropes and targeting inotropes in different pathophysiological situations. And joining me in this conversation is Professor Nick Evans from the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital in Sydney, Australia. Nick is a globally recognised neonatologist who has introduced point-of-care ultrasound to the neonatal unit and to dozens of practising neonatologists, including me. Nick has been practising neonatology in a perinatal unit for 40 years and really thinking physiologically about inotropes, how best to support babies and facilitating research in that area for most of those decades. So welcome, Nick. Thank you. So Nick, in this podcast, I'm hoping we can try and plain speak our understanding of inotrope use and to share our knowledge and understanding. And of course, for North American listeners, the terms adrenaline and noradrenaline are used in place of epinephrine and norepinephrine. And in Australia, we report CO2 in millimetres of mercury. So to convert our numbers to KPA, you will need to multiply by 0.13. So when we say a CO2 is 40, it would equate to 5.2 KPA. So to start off with, Nick, what can you tell us about the literature guiding the use of inotropes in the neonate? Are there any randomised control trials that can help us in the NICU? Yeah, thanks, Kath. Um, most of the, I mean, most of the literature on the use of inotropes is based around uh, studying the physiological effects of those inotropes in the clinical trials. A lot of that uh, relates to the effects of inotropes on blood pressure, um, and it's it's limited to blood pressure and the effects on blood pressure. Um, there are very few placebo-controlled trials. Usually, it's one inotrope compared against another inotrope. Um, and there are almost no outcome-based trials. Um, uh, there's only two trials that I'm aware of that have looked at neurodevelopmental outcome, and neither of them showed any difference. But neither of them were either, neither of them were powered to actually look at neurodevelopmental outcome um, uh, in a meaningful way. So there's really very little in the way of outcome-based evidence to guide us on the use of inotropes in newborns. Right. So given that there's very little evidence, how do you decide you're going to start an inotrope on any particular baby in the nursery? Uh, I mean, clearly, I, I would come from a perspective that um, you need to try and define what's going on hemodynamically in the baby, and I would argue that to do that, you need point-of-care ultrasound. I don't believe you can do it without point-of-care ultrasound. But I think if you're looking at which babies, I mean, you, you would need triggers to do point-of-care ultrasound. And clearly, sometimes those triggers are going to be clinical signs. But a lot of the problem is the, the clinical signs, including blood pressure, are not accurate markers of circulatory compromise. So 
I think you also need to apply this cognizant of the high-risk situations for hemodynamic compromise in babies. So you almost need to go looking for the problems uh, in babies that are that are high risk um, and recognize what those high-risk situations. And there's a range of those. The most obvious ones are the very preterm baby in the first 24 hours after birth, uh, any baby with significant hypoxic respiratory failure, uh, sepsis, post-asphyxia. Post there's a range of situations where I would argue almost a need to go looking for uh, the, the circulatory status of the baby, independent of the clinical signs. Okay, so really um, it's about conscious practice, thinking about the physiology, understanding an individual baby's physiology um, with your point of care ultrasound and your clinical signs, and then applying our understanding of the pharmacology of inotropes when they're administered, and then che checking in on the baby not just with arterial pressure, lactate and urine output, but also with ultrasound to assess cardiac contractility and output under the influence of inotropes. Yes, I think, uh, I mean, it's difficult because I'm aware that many neonatologists are practicing without uh, access to ultrasound information, or if they are, uh, they're reliant on a consultative service which won't be able to, to be very responsive to uh, a critical situation. So... Um, it, it, it's difficult because my practice has evolved around having a, a reasonably good idea of what's going on hemodynamically, and I'm aware that many neonatologists don't practice in that environment. Um, I, I think many many neonatologists rely on blood pressure, and blood pressure is clearly an important uh, measure. It's a vital sign, but it needs to be emphasised that blood pressure is not the same as blood flow, and this is basic physiology, but I think we need to bring it out at this point, is that pressure is the product of flow and resistance. So pressure can be low because flow is low, and clearly that's the most that's very important in terms of oxygen delivery, but pressure can also be low because resistance is low, and sometimes pressure can be low because both of them are low. And so really to work out what's happening in an individual circumstance you actually need a measure of flow and a measure of pressure. Uh, you need the two, the two together. Um, and, you know, boiling down to its basics, it, it is very complex, but there are only so many things that go wrong with the circulation. Um, and you can delineate those. Hypovolemia is clearly important, incredibly rare vastly untreated, as I think we'll get on to, um, but it is there as important. You can have pump failure, uh, myocardial um, failure, uh, and very closely linked to that, you can have problems of high afterload, which can be natural or induced by us, um, and you've got vasodilation of lo or loss of afterload. And then interplaying with all that, you've got the various hemodynamic states that can be created by pulmonary hypertension. And clearly there's a very close interplay between the pulmonary and the systemic circulation, which you really have to try and consider in a lot of these situations. Right. So I thought what we could do is structure our conversation around a virtual ward round on six patients where we talk through the clinical case and then discuss which inotrope we might choose to manage any given situation. And just to summarise or set the scene a little from what you've just said, um, the heart's job is to pump blood to the lungs and body and its ability to do so is based on load or how much fluid we give and expect it to pump and the strength of that contraction. 
whether it is intrinsically driven or extrinsically augmented with inotropes. And then how much resistance there is for the heart to pump into, how much capacity there is in the systemic vasculature. Even without the benefit of ultrasound, I like to teach my trainees that, that, they, that they should try and visualise with their mind's eye how the heart might be coping with the load they are given, giving, given the history of the baby, the fluids that we've administered and the inotropes effect on the contractility versus the alpha receptor effects on the systemic vasculature. So our first case on our ward round neck is of a term baby who is born through meconium and has a chest X-ray of patchy opacities and a small effusion on the left base. The baby was born following a normal pregnancy and labour. Group B strep screening had been negative, although mother had developed a fever in utero and received penicillin. The baby boy was born at 4 kilos, with APGAR scores of 3, 6 and 8, and is now struggling to breathe. He appears well-nourished with a fleshy Wharton's jelly and clean fingernails. Annette's retrieval team have arrived at the local hospital and have intubated and ventilated the baby and inserted umbilical lines, and they are now calling to ask for advice through the inotrope choice as the heart rate is 175 beats per minute and the mean arterial pressure is 30 millimetres of mercury. The baby is now two hours of age and has had antibiotics, they are struggling with oxygenation and ventilation and are considering that the baby has meconium aspiration syndrome. What is your advice, Nick, in this scenario and why? Um, so I would be, I suppose I would be considering three possible diagnoses uh, in this situation. Um, the first one would be, what well, did this baby suffer a degree of intrapartum asphyxia? Um, and so I would be I would have been interested to know the cord pH if there was a cord pH available, um, and the APGAR scores the one minute APGAR score is low, but they recover the APGAR scores recover quite quickly at six and an eight, and so that would that would go against a significant intrapartum asphyxia. So then, really, the choice is between um, uh, meconium aspiration and or sepsis, meconium stained lycor puts meconium aspiration as a possibility. And with sepsis, you've got evidence both for and against. The evidence against is the um, negative swab and the fact the mother was given penicillin during labour. The evidence for is the fact that you've got quite a tachycardic baby with a low blood pressure and that, would all, that should always raise the possibility uh, uh, of sepsis. Um, we don't have access to cardiac ultrasound, so we have to guess at the likely hemodynamic I think in light of the age and the oxygen requirement, I would say there's probably an element of pulmonary hypertension in this case. Um, and the tachycardia and low blood pressure, as I've already said, could suggest sepsis. So I probably could clear up a few things for you. The cord pH was 7.1 and the base excess on that was minus 10. And the meconium had only appeared in the last hour before delivery. Okay, so that would, um, the core pH 7.1 and base excess minus 10, you're at the sort of edges of the normal range for arterial core pH after um, uh, a vaginal birth. Um, so that would make asphyxia unlikely. Um, you've only got short-term exposure to meconium. So again, that makes meconium aspiration unlikely, 
but not impossible. So that, that would sort of tend to sway things a little bit more towards sepsis. Um, if you have got early onset sepsis, you usually have an element of pulmonary hypertension and there's often a vasodilatory effect. Not always, but often vasodilatory. So I would be looking to start nitric oxide in this situation. It doesn't often work very well in early onset sepsis, but I would often, I would use it. And I think that really you want an inotrope with a presser effect. That's be, well, that would be where I would be starting here on the assumption I'm working blind. Um, in pure PPHN, the inotrope, the presser inotrope, interestingly around which there's probably the best hemodynamic evidence is noradrenaline. Uh, but really, I think you could probably use any of dopamine, adrenaline, or noradrenaline. But what I would say is you need to be very careful about using the lowest effective dose. I mean, if you're targeting blood pressure, you would really want to use the lowest dose you can, consistent with getting a blood pressure you're comfortable with. Um, all those inotropes can be a problem if you wrap the dose up too high. Mm. So given the heart rate's 175, um, the team has suggest that perhaps they'd like to use some dobutamine. Um, what would be your thoughts on that choice of inotrope in this setting? Well, in, in sepsis, the problem is usually vasodilatory uh, and dobutamine has inotrope effects, doesn't have pressor effects, has some dilator effects. So you would be exacerbating that problem with dobutamine. Um, it can have chronotropic effects, and you've got a, already got a heart rate of 175, so that's probably not particularly desirable either. Uh, again, if I was working blind, I probably wouldn't use dibutamine in this situation. Mm. And I guess um, some of the research coming out of Buffalo, New York, would, would guide us towards not using dopamine in the setting of PPHN, um, given that in the setting of pulmonary hypertension, it can increase your pulmonary vascular resistance simultaneously. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's an unknown. There is also some work done in preterm babies at the pressure in the pressure gradient across the ductus uh, in um, uh, with the use of dopamine. And in fact, if anything, it has a neutral effect. You know, the the effect is variable. In some, it shifts it towards a, a higher pulmonary pressure, and some it shifts it towards a higher systemic pressure. And if you take it overall, it's neutral. Um, I'm not aware that anyone's done that work with adrenaline uh, with adrenaline. Um, uh, with noradrenaline, the work that the French the French paper suggested that in most babies it shifted it towards a higher systemic pressure and a lower pulmonary pressure, and that's why I say that's the the drug around which we have most uh, evidence of effect. But noradrenaline won't have any inotropic effects. So if you need an inotropic effect, it won't give you that. Um, and that would be the problem of using that blind in this situation. And you, you've got this baby in a in a local hospital, and that may also be another reason you don't want to give this baby more adrenaline. Um, so this baby boy was actually managed with adrenaline and inhaled nitric oxide, as you said, in transport, and then noradrenaline was added on arrival at the tertiary centre. Group B streptococcus did grow on the placenta, and um, fortunately, he's now had a normal developmental outcome following a particularly stormy course in the NICU. So our next case, Nick, is a baby born to a 40-year-old mum who underwent an IVF pregnancy and has now spontaneously delivered a 26-week male infant. You're in the tertiary NICU 
And we know that prior to delivery, a complete course of steroids was given and magnesium sulfate was also administered to prevent cerebral palsy. We also know that there has been delayed cord clamping to allow for placental transfusion and antibiotics were given during the, lab during the labor. At three hours of life, the baby has received antibiotics and is being gently ventilated for respiratory distress and apnea. The heart rate is 160 beats per minute and the mean arterial pressure is 24. Your neonatal fellow has performed a screening ultrasound and we know that the ductus arteriosus is two millimeters and flowing mainly left to right. The superior vena cava flow is 40 mils per kilo per minute and the right ventricular output is 90 mils per kilo per minute. The blood gas shows that ventilation is under control, but the lactate is 2.9 millimoles per litre. Nick, what would your advice be in this scenario? What are normal flows in this baby? And what therapeutic outcome would you be looking for when targeting inotropes? Yes, I, I mean, this baby... Um the SVC flow and right ventricular output would suggest this baby's in a, low, in a low flow state, low systemic blood flow state. So the lower limits of normal for SVC flow would be variously quoted, but usually 45 or 50 is the lower limit of normal. And for right ventricular output, um, you would usually quote less than 150 as being low or more than 150 being, being okay. So this baby's in a low output state. Um, and this is the common hemodynamic uh, in the transitional um, circulation for very preterm babies. When I say common, it still only occurs in a minority, and over the years we've been studying this, it's occurring actually in less and less. Um, on the positive side in this baby, you've got, seem to have relatively little in the way of uh, respiratory distress. Um, the baby has had steroid, uh, full steroid coverage, and so there are, there are some positive things in this, but the natural history of systemic flow in preterm babies tends to be that it uh, gets worse over the first six to nine hours uh, with a nadir inflow sometime at that time uh, and generally from about 12 to 24 hours things improve spontaneously so you have a sort of uh, a reduction in perfusion reperfusion cycles so I would anticipate on that natural history that this baby is at risk of getting worse because the baby's only three hours old so um, I would be starting this baby on dibutamine. Uh, the best evidence we have around improving flow uh, in these babies is that dibutamine is better than certainly dopamine. Uh, we know less about the other inotropes in this situation. Um, we don't really know why babies do this, but when you... You always have to remember that a preterm baby is essentially an exteriorized fetus and their systems are adapted to an intrauterine environment. And for the preterm, uh, for the heart, this means they're adapted to the low resistance circuit of the placenta. And so you suddenly put them in a high resistance situation, ex utero, um, and the heart probably uh, struggles. So there's probably an element of afterload compromise uh, that actually creates this. And uh, so for that reason, I would be using dibutamine in this baby. I would start at 10. I would, 10 mites per kilo per hour, I should say. And I would look probably within about half to, about 30 to 60 minutes after starting that. And if it wasn't improving, I'd go quite quickly to 20 um, in this baby. Okay, so there has been a randomised control trial in this scenario, hasn't there, using, using milrinone. And pathophysiologically, you would think that would 
would have helped. But why didn't that work in this scenario? Yes, I don't think we know that. This was a trial we did. This is one of the few placebo-controlled trials, actually. We randomised um, high-risk babies prophylactically to milrinone or placebo to see if we could prevent the low output state, and it didn't make any difference. I think there were a range of reasons uh, for that, which um, partly relate to the time we were able to start milrinone because of consent, partly relates to the fact that milrinone may have different effects in preterm babies than in term babies, and partly relates to the fact that milrinone does dilate up the diapers arteriosus, and we showed that, and that may have actually... Uh, confounded any positive effects, but we didn't find any evidence to support milrinone uh, helping in this situation. And and I guess the point of starting the the ananotrope in this scenario is to prevent um, adverse outcomes of the low cardiac output state. Yeah. And mm. do we know that um, that actually helps in this scenario? No, we don't. We don't. We we in the original studies that we did, we were able to relate. Um, uh, Low, the low output state to a range of different outcomes, uh, particularly intraventricular hemorrhage, which seems to happen as the perfusion improves, um, uh, but also neurodevelopmental outcome. But we don't know that the inotropes make any difference to that. This is empirical. Yeah. So you, you're treating a low cardiac output state because we perceive that might be bad for the baby, but we don't. we haven't been able to actually prove that using inotropes in that scenario helps. No. 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 Okay. All right. So case three, Nick, this um, this case brings to mind one of my senior clinicians and he will know who he is if he listens to this podcast. He had a classic plan of attack when an infant arrived into his nursery on maximal therapy. His modus operandi, when all seemed lost, was to slowly turn everything down, back off on the ventilation, the inotrope, slow the fluids. Miraculously, these babies often turned the corner, and as a junior doctor, I could never really figure out why. These babies were referred to us because they needed all of this therapy, and without any clear indication that they were improving, he would just slowly edge it all back. The infant would settle, the lactate would drop, the urine output would return. Can you perhaps help us all to understand how and why this approach can work, and why we should be really consciously using our therapies and not always continuing on an upward trajectory in management. Yes, I mean, I, I agree with your colleague because I think this is a very important issue. And I think, unfortunately, there is a bit of an instinct in all of us that if a bit of something is good, then, then more must be better. And, um, and I think that's not true throughout medical therapeutics, but it's particularly not true in circulatory support. So... Uh, there are negative effects of ventilating a baby too hard. High carbon dioxide is probably sorry. Low carbon dioxide is um, uh, is not good for cerebral blood flow. High intrathoracic pressure is not good for cardiac output. Um, I think with inotropes, uh, if you're using a pressor inotrope, um, you can you can reassure yourself that you're helping because you're putting the blood pressure up, where in fact you're actually compromising the circulation by. Uh, actually um, increasing the afterload on the heart too high. And volume is probably the biggest problem. People tend to use volume uh, very liberally in circumstances where they have little evidence to support there is hypovolemia. And I think a lot of people forget that too much volume is harmful in a range of ways. So, um, uh, you know, 
clearly I know the circumstance you're in that most of your babies are outborn um, and a lot of these fact a lot of these therapies will have been given in a relatively blind way and it's easy for too much to be given and that all these harms we've talked about to, to happen okay so this case that I want to talk about next is actually of a baby that had an initially unrecognized subgaleal hemorrhage this term baby boy had been born with the assistance of a vacuum and had low apgars and the chest x-ray was thought to represent a left-sided pneumonia. The treating team had given this poorly perfused, moderately ventilated baby 60 mL per kilo of bolus crystalloid and he was now on high-dose dopamine or 10 micrograms per kilogram per minute. The heart rate was dropping to 80 and the team were preparing to enter full resuscitation with arrest doses of adrenaline being drawn up. The heart sounds could not be heard, although air entry was equal and clear. There were no peripheral pulses palpable, although the brachial pulses were felt to be strong. The baby was mottled and grey. Via teleconference with the tertiary neonatal intensive care, the advice was to give a rapid blood transfusion and to increase the dopamine to 15 mics per kilogram per minute. What do you think of this advice and what else would you want to know before embarking on a treatment strategy? Um, I mean, I suppose this case highlights the problem of running blind and running blind in situations where the baby might be hypovolemic. Um, the baby's been, I mean, the alarm bell for me would signal in this baby that this baby's been given 60 mils per kilo of volume, which is going to be about three quarters of his blood volume. And if you haven't corrected the hemodynamic with 60 mils per kilo, the baby's not hypovolemic, as long as you know that the bleeding is not going, or not ongoing. Um, now, with a subgaleal, you usually just by examining a subgaleal hemorrhage, you get a pretty good idea whether it's an ongoing process or not. So I would be very reluctant to give this baby any more volume. Um, the, the inotrope... I mean, I would argue 10 mics per kilo is probably a middling dose of, of dopamine. Um, I know that's, you know, some people would say that's a high dose. Um, I, I, I certainly wouldn't put it up in this situation, um, but I would probably be cautious about turning it down until I had some ultrasound information on what was going on. Uh, if the baby was on, say, 20 mics, I might well drop that back to 10. But probably at 10, I would leave it until I had a bit more information. Hmm. Uh, but I definitely wouldn't be pushing the volume in this baby unless I had evidence that the subgaleal was rapidly expanding. Yeah, so the subgaleal was certainly evident. And I can let you know that a check with the ultrasound on the heart confirmed that the heart was dilated with fluid and was barely contracting. The valves were just fluttering, hence there was no sounds made. The treating team had bravely decided to turn down the dopamine and to stop the fluids to see if the pump just needed a break. And the results in this baby were instantaneous. The baby flushed pink and the pulses returned. On a second look with the ultrasound, the heart was contracting normally and the rate returned to 130 beats per minute. The team changed the inotrope to low-dose adrenaline and commenced a slow blood transfusion. So this was a real crisis that was averted. And what is absolutely delightful to know about this true story of near death is that this child has had a normal developmental outcome, thanks to point-of-care ultrasound. Sometimes we need to recognise that what we're doing is unhelpful and we need to recognise that and make a change. 
Yes, I think, I mean, I, I agree very strongly with that. And I've seen so many situations of inappropriate use of volume where it has, has done harm uh, in, in some cases where it's actively killed babies. And, um, and, and I think that we, we always need to be thinking of volume of exactly what we're treating with the volume. I think there's a great danger. And I think this is probably more in the pediatric world than in um, in the neonatal world. I notice this more now in, in neonates who present to pediatric departments and emergency departments um, that people are using a volume inappropriately. And it's almost like a sort of reflex thing that if the circulation doesn't look too good, you, you, know, you push in 10 mils per kilo of volume. And, uh, mm. um, it, you know, at those low levels of volume, you're not going to do harm. But once you start getting much above 20 mils per kilo, if you haven't solved the hemodynamic it's not hypovolemia and you're only going to do harm by pushing the volume. Mm. And I guess the salient point about this case too, Nick, was we when the team did turn the inotrope down, um, the pulses returned peripherally. So mm. they probably were hanging on too tight with their inotropic support. Yeah, I've not seen that at, at 10 mics per kilo of dopamine, but I've certainly seen it uh, with adrenaline um, once you start moving from the low to the high dose mm. um, ranges of adrenaline. I've definitely seen that and exactly that effect. You stop it and the heart starts beating again. Yep, mm. yep. Okay, so case four. Next we have a term 3.8 kilo baby girl born in a large metropolitan hospital that doesn't have access to a neonatal intensive care unit. The baby was born following a non-reassuring CTG to a primiparous woman, with and the baby had APGARs of 0, 1, and 3, with obvious encephalopathy at birth, although she was making some limb movements. The oxygen requirement is 80%, and the chest X-ray following intubation is clear, with a cardiothoracic ratio of 0.6. The oxygen saturations are labile with handling, and at best are reaching 92%. Her heart rate is 110 beats per minute and her mean arterial pressure is 32. Peripheral pulses are felt to be weak. There is no scan available. She is being cooled and currently at three hours of life, her temperature is 34 degrees Celsius and the blood gas reveals a pH of 6.8, a CO2 of 25 millimetres of mercury, a PaO2 of 55, a base excess of minus 20, and a lactate of 12. She is minimally ventilated with a 3mm ETT with 10 mics of morphine running. She does, does she need an inotrope and which one would you choose and why? And Nick, what else would you suggest to optimise her management? Um, again here, it would, uh, it, would, it would be good to know what the cord gas is because you really need to know the baseline acid base in a, in a baby like this to be able to understand whether her current, I mean, at the moment she's got a compensated or partially compensated um, metabolic acidosis, hasn't she? She's got a low CO2, um, uh, she's got a high lactate and a low base excess. So there's a, there's, there's a metabolic lactic acidosis, which is partially compensated by a low carbon dioxide. She's probably breathing that off herself uh, as a compensatory uh, mechanism. So I think it would be useful to know if she had a cord gas or an earlier gas. Um, this looks very like asphyxia. Um, and I think in asphyxia, it's important to remember that the effects on both the pulmonary vasculature and the myocardium can be secondary to the acidosis. 
they're not necessarily, if you like, primary organ injury effects. Um, and so in this baby, I would probably, I think we said she's three hours old now and she's still got a lactate of 12. I would probably be doing a, a slow correction, a slow half correction on that with some bicarbonate. She's overventilated, but she's minimally ventilated, so there's probably not a lot you can do about the carbon dioxide. You know, if she was more actively ventilated, you'd want to back off on the ventilation a bit. Um, and so what I would do, and, and so I'd probably give some correction for the acidosis. I would assume there might be an element of pulmonary hypertension, so I might start some nitric oxide here. Her oxygenation is labile. She's in 80% oxygen. Um and then I would probably reassess after that. Um, uh, but I think you could you could probably use a range of inotropes here. The evidence around the hemodynamic effects of inotropes in, in asphyxiated babies is that most of them seem to have positive effects, you know, low-dose adrenaline. And I, I don't think there's work on um, noradrenaline in this situation, but... Um, uh, low-dose dopamine and dibutamine all have positive uh, positive effects. So you could really probably use any of them. I would personally use um, uh, dibutamine um, uh, because of its inotropic effects in this situation. Yeah, so some people often ask me, Nick, this baby's being cooled, and is that considered a negative inotrope? And given that the oxygen requirement seems to be 80%, um, would that... Um, lead you to warm the baby or to manage the cooling in a different way? Um, uh, dealing with the second question first of, you know, is PPHN a contraindication to, uh, uh, to hypothermia? Um, it, it, is, it is often quoted in the lists as a risk, and I think a lot of that's based on the evidence that in some babies they observed an increase in oxygen requirement once the babies were cooled. Um, I think I would take a pragmatic approach is that the evidence around cooling and PPHN is not very strong, uh, whereas the evidence around hypothermia uh, improving uh, neurological outcomes in a baby like this is is very strong. So my approach would be initially to try and manage the PPHN without actually rewarming the baby. This baby's encephalopathic. Um, there's probably fairly clear evidence of acute effects of brain injury in this baby. He's a, he, she, she, sorry, is a high-risk uh, of um, neurological consequences. So I, I would be looking to manage the PPHN using the available um, treatments before I rewarmed the baby. If those treatments didn't work and the baby was getting worse, then I might consider rewarming the baby uh, in that situation. Right, and I guess this is an outborn baby and we didn't have a blood gas at birth, actually. We just had the APGARS to go on and the fact that she was encephalopathic. But could this be infection? And would that change your thinking around which inotrope you might choose? Look, I think it's unlikely, but possible. Um, I would probably go with um, uh, asphyxia as being the likely primary diagnosis um, and work down that track uh, before I necessarily went down a, a septic track. Um, uh, you know, sepsis can, can, be, um, can be anywhere, can't it, in, mm. uh, in neonatology? Um, but although we often, you know, babies with asphyxia will usually get covered with antibiotics because people worry about infection, 
my experience would be that definitive evidence of infection in such babies is unusual. Not that it never happens, mm. but it's unusual. The other question you asked was, is cooling a negative inotrope? And I think the evidence around that for this birth animal and human evidence around that is that it's not. It doesn't further deteriorate the um, circulatory circumstances. It, it reduces heart rate, but cardiac output's usually maintained. Great. Um, so just to finish off the story for this baby, um, it was presumed to have hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy during the retrieval, complicated by pulmonary hypertension, and was managed with um, the team actually sized the tube up to a four millimetre. Um, even though the CO2 was 25, I think that was based on the poor handling and the management of PPHN. Um, they did warm the baby a little bit, gave some low-dose adrenaline, muscle relaxed the baby, and as you said, they've corrected with some bicarbonate. Perhaps you were on the call. On arrival to the tertiary NICU at five hours of life, um, the oxygen requirement had come down to 45%, and so cooling was recommenced, and she has survived to discharge and establishing breastfeeding at that time. So um, sucking at discharge is always a good sign. Um, so, Nick, we have two more cases. I hope you can um, stick with us. Yeah, all good. Um, the baby in virtual bed five is 4.8 kilos and has just been born an hour ago via forceps to a mum who is known to be a poorly controlled diabetic. The baby has severe respiratory distress, has been ventilated, given surfactant, and now has a mean arterial blood pressure of 30 millimetres of mercury and a heart rate of 168 beats per, per minute. His initial blood sugars were 0.8, 1.2, and then 1.7 millimoles per litre. And he has received intravenous glucose replacement and is now on a glucagon infusion of 20 mics per kilo per minute. And his blood sugar is now 4.2 millimoles per litre. He did have a blood gas at birth with a pH of 7.1 and a base excess of minus 6. Clinician performed ultrasound has revealed a grossly hypertrophied heart with an open ductus flowing bidirectionally and a right ventricular output that is 160 mils per kilo per minute. The arterial blood gas at the moment has a pH of 6.95, a CO2 of 72, a PaO2 of 55, a bicarbonate of 15.7 millimoles per litre a base excess of minus 17, and a lactate of 14. The clinical staff are quite concerned about the mean blood pressure of 30 and ask your advice for treatment. They are thinking of using dobutamine. What are your thoughts in this scenario and what should we do to help this baby? Um, so the cord gas doesn't suggest asphyxia. Did you tell me what the ventilation requirements and oxygen requirements were at the moment in this baby? That would be the other question I would have. Yeah, so he's being ventilated um, 25 on 5 with a rate of 40 in 80% oxygen. Yes, yeah. I mean, this this it's very likely this baby is suffering the consequence of, you know, the cardiac consequences of his mother's poorly controlled um, diabetes. So he's got the the, 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 the hypertrophic infant of a diabetic mother, cardiomyopathy. Um, these babies also very commonly have a pulmonary hypertensive component, um, and that would be supported by the bidirectional shunt. Um, you'd need to know the degree of right-to-left shunting through that bidirectional shunt 
bidirectional shunting is quite a quite a wide range con continuum. Um, the um, uh, but the high CO two would suggest this baby needs more ventilation. So I, I would certainly be looking to increase uh, the baby's ventilation. Um, uh, there, there is evidence of an element of pulmonary hypertension, so I might consider nitric oxide in view of the high oxygen requirement and the cardiac evidence uh, of, or the, you know, the ductal evidence of pulmonary hypertension. These cases are difficult because you have to be careful about using inotropes in babies with hypertrophic uh, cardiomyopathies because you, you may actually worsen the situation because some of the compromise here is both it's both a filling problem, but it also can be a an emptying problem with obstruction to outflows and things like that. So you may actually make things worse with um, an inotrope. Um, and I would, to be honest, in this situation, I'd probably be discussing this with a cardiologist. Um, sometimes I know in these situations they use pure afterload reducers like Captopril. Um, and I, I wouldn't be doing that without consulting with a cardiologist. Yes, so... Um... I think we'd agree. Um, this baby was transferred to the children's hospital um, where the cardiologists were on, si were on site and the baby had a stormy course but um, eventually remodelled their heart and has um, now been discharged. So Nick, we are at the end of our virtual ward round and we just have one more sick baby boy to look at. He was born an hour ago to a multiparous lady at 42 weeks with a birth weight of 3.3 kilos. Mother was known to be group B strep negative. Her membranes had ruptured 12 hours ago and there was thick meconium. Due to the meconium and low grade temperature, antibiotics were given during labour. The baby is stained with meconium in his shriveled Wharton's jelly and also in his fingernails. He was awarded APGARS of five and six, but developed very early onset severe respiratory distress. He was intubated and ventilated at birth and is now on pressures of 30 on 6 with a rate of 45, an eye time of 0.4 and an FiO2 of 100%. His chest x-ray reveals patchy opacifications and areas of hyperinflation. There is evidence of pneumomediastinal air leak. He currently has a heart rate of 140 and a mean arterial pressure of 34. A capillary return or a capillary refill time of three seconds and his oxygen saturations are currently 93%. Clinician performed ultrasound has revealed a pulmonary artery pressure equivalent to 50 millimeters of mercury and a tricuspid regurgitation of four meters per second. The ductus arteriosus is flowing largely right to left and his right ventricle is enlarged with an intraventricular septum that is seen bowing into the left ventricle. So lots of evidence of persistent pulmonary hypertension. The right ventricular output is at 160 mils per kilo per minute, and the contractility looks borderline, but reasonable. A recent blood gas has shown that he has a pH of 6.9, a CO2 of 65, an O2 of 38, bicarbonate is 12 and the lactate is 15 millimoles per litre. The team have diagnosed the baby with severe meconium aspiration syndrome and PPHN. So Nick, firstly do you agree with their diagnosis and why? 
And what management would you suggest now to help stabilise this baby? I do agree with this diagnosis. Um, the history here um, is, I think we talked previously about the fact that meconium aspiration is often you know, over-diagnosed. Any baby with respiratory distress born through meconium is often assumed to have had meconium aspiration. Um, but you, in the, in the, the, the really serious cases, uh, you often see a history like this where there's been subacute to chronic fetal compromise um, uh, this baby has probably been in meconium for some time and has probably been slowly inhaling meconium over quite a long period of time. The high pressures needed on the ventilator and the x-rays are consistent with meconium aspiration syndrome. The cardiac ultrasound is consistent with PPHN. And to my mind, it's really important in these situations to try and define whether you're dealing with primary or secondary PPHN. In the original descriptions of PPHN, the authors were very um, uh, careful about defining the difference between primary PPHN, where the problem seems to be in a primary problem of the vasodilation in the lungs, and secondary PPHN, which is secondary to parenchymal lung pathology. And this is secondary PPHN. Um, and so my initial approach here would be very much to focus on the lungs. Um, and I would be looking to give this baby surfactant and repeated doses of surfactant. I think the evidence around surfactant in meconium aspiration is that you need to give regular repeated doses before you start to see an effect. I'd be increasing the ventilation in this baby, the carbon dioxide 65, and I would be considering high-frequency ventilation if that was a possibility um, for a baby like this. Um, I, I might... Uh, consider correcting the acidosis in this baby. The lactate is 15, and so this baby's still got um, evidence of uh, compromise from that. And I think there probably wouldn't be any harm in starting nitric oxide. So those would be my initial steps. And then I would really, having done that, I would then reassess and assess what was happening hemodynamically. Um, and I would consider whether I needed an inotrope after that. And it there's a range of possibilities that could happen here, and my use of the inotrope would depend on what I found. Um, but I think that, uh, to my mind, the main message is that really when you're dealing with PPHN that's secondary to lung disease, the primary focus of management needs to be on the lungs. Um, and then once you've actually optimised that, then you think about the heart. Um, and uh, so that's how I would approach it in this baby. So if you've optimised all that and your right ventricular output is still 160 mils per kilo per minute and your blood pressure is 30, um, and, and perhaps this baby would need um, retrieval, what, what inotrope would you suggest to the retrieval team en route? Because it sounds like the, <clears throat> the assessment of the pulmonary artery pressure is 50. And so we're talking about suprasystemic pulmonary hypertension, aren't we? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's not a very high right ventricular output, that. And, of course, you've got to remember in this situation, uh, your right ventricular output is your right ventricular output is going both into the lungs and into the systemic circulation. So it's not telling you a lot about the systemic circulation, but it's not very high. And that in itself would suggest that maybe the circulating volumes in this baby aren't very high. Um, sorry, the circulating flows, I would say, rather than circulating volumes. Um, uh, I mean, I would hope that 
what I was doing would improve the pulmonary artery pressure. If the pulmonary artery pressure was still that high, um, then I, I would probably be thinking about something that's focused more on pulmonary hypertension than necessarily um, cardiac support, particularly if the contractility didn't look too bad. And I might be thinking about something like nor, um, noradrenaline in that situation um, uh, to try and improve the um, systemic pressure a bit and hopefully push the balance back towards the systemic pressure. Yeah, so from a retrieval perspective, I would agree that noradrenaline does seem to have more evidence base. But paradoxically, I would find in Australia, clinically, people aren't using noradrenaline as frequently. And I guess on retrieval, if you've had an ultrasound and you can show that there's good contractility, and um, certainly on long retrievals, um, if you can check that the baby's had an ultrasound post starting their noradrenaline and the cardiac contractility is coping with that afterload, I'd be comfortable to use it. But more commonly in retrieval, what I find is that we don't have an ultrasound. And so I would commonly recommend adrenaline so that we have both some cardiac output support, but also um, systemic support. And this baby did have maximal therapy and actually didn't respond very well with the oxygenation index approaching 40 and so was eventually transferred for ECMO support and actually has had a good outcome following their intensive care episode. Um, the placenta was very calcified and stained with meconium and the cultures remained negative. So we did get that confirmation of our diagnosis Okay, so that concludes our virtual board round, Nick. And to summarise, I think we would both encourage everyone to ask questions and to always understand the therapeutic goals of the inotropes they are ordering. They are powerful cardiovascular medications that different babies often respond individually to. So really checking in with the baby with clinician-performed ultrasound, looking at the mean arterial pressure, and the arterial blood gas should guide your management in real time. And always remember, sometimes you do need to pull back and turn down your inotropes and therapy when you aren't seeing the physiological response you think you should be. So Nick, just one last thing before we sign off. Your career has really led the research into neonatal hemodynamics. Where would you like to see young researchers go now? What would you encourage as the next frontier of neonatal hemodynamic research? Um, well, I think our discussions today have highlighted how little we understand about what many of the therapies um, are doing. I mean, a lot of my original work was really based around questioning some of the traditional assumptions that have been made about what was happening hemodynamically in babies and we showed through study in a whole range of areas including preterm babies and term babies with suspected PPHN that the what you actually find is often not what you would expect clinically. I think that the gap really now is in actually understanding what each of these inotropes do in these situations and probably particularly in the pulmonary hypertensive situation. Um, uh, I, I think that there is some evidence around the use of milrinone uh, in pulmonary hypertension, and that certainly seems to have some beneficial effects in babies who don't respond to nitric oxide, but milrinone is quite a strong systemic vasodilator as well, so you need to use that cautiously in a baby if the blood pressure is low. 
There is the, um, the one study on the use of noradrenaline uh, in this situation, but we really don't know a huge amount about what dopamine and adrenaline are doing in these situations. And so I think that there's certainly room for more understanding around that. Um, the, 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 the people who take a more pure evidence-based approach to medicine would argue that there's a need for more clinical trials uh, in this area. And I don't disagree with that, but it's a very difficult area to do clinical trials in. There's a lot of clinical trials that have fallen foul of just the sheer difficult pragmatics of doing research, doing clinical trials in this area. Um, and that's been our experience as well. We've been successful with small clinical trials, um, but it's a very, very difficult area. It's because the babies are all individual and they have their own clinical pathway, so it's hard to get a group of babies that have the same problem Yeah, I think that's right. I think yeah. that clinical trials work, work best in situations where you have relatively homogenous pathophysiology and where it's a reasonable assumption that a one-size-fits-all treatment will may help the babies and then test that. Hemodynamics is really the antithesis of that, where both the pathophysiology is actually very different, but also the way the babies respond to the different treatments is, is very different. It's confounded by the fact, the other confounder is that people have a lot of um, uh, bias in these situations. It's very difficult to get clinicians into a point of equipoise around particular treatments, and that confounds a lot of the um, uh, the trials uh, in, in this area. Um, it's also very difficult because consent is often difficult. You're dealing with a critical care situation where things are often very acute and there's not a lot of time to go into an exhaustive explanation with family around consents. And, um, uh, and so there's a whole range of reasons why clinical trials in this area are difficult. Um, People may be more successful in the future, but I'm not sure. I think it, it, this is almost an area where it may need a, a, a radical rethink in terms of um, uh, the way we do the trials and, and possibly that we're going to do cluster randomised trials where particular units are randomised to particular approaches and th that approach may be better than a, um, an individual randomised clinical trial in the traditional way. Mm. So we wish all our young researchers um, all the best for the future and thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much. If you have enjoyed this podcast or have questions, please head to the Facebook page Neonatal Conversations where there are links to the references used and where we might be able to continue the discussion. We would really appreciate any feedback you might have. Thanks so much for listening and thank you all for caring for the critically ill newborn. Thank you.